Today's program has been brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. This is Clay Gordon of thechocolatelife.com, and you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm Grace Bonney of After the Jump, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. We're going to be talking antibiotics today. Ooh, big surprise, my favorite topic. But there was big, big news. Uh, Just recently, Purdue Chicken has announced that they are phasing out some of their antibiotic protocols. And on the line with me today is uh, Dr. Gail Hansen, who serves as a senior officer for Pew's Campaign on Human Health and Industrial Farming a project aimed at phasing out the overuse of antibiotics in food production. She has served on or chaired numerous state and federal infectious disease committees as a scientific advisor for several national and international conferences and is an adjunct faculty member of the Kansas State University College of Veterinary Medicine. She has authored several peer-reviewed publications on various infectious diseases and public health topics and has provided practical training in applied epidemiology to public health scholars. Dr. Hansen had a highly successful 12-year career in private veterinary clinical practice before shifting to public health at local and state public health departments. Prior to joining Pew, she was a congressional science policy fellow and a legislative assistant for your hero and mine, U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders from Vermont. So um, welcome to the program, Gail. Thank you so much for joining me today. So this was huge, huge news for uh, the livestock industry. I mean, basically, Purdue has broken ranks. Uh, So let's talk about the new protocols that they've announced on their antibiotics use. What are they, basically the meat of which seems to be that they are no longer using any antibiotics in their hatcheries or any human antibiotics in feed. And they claim that they've reached the point where 95% of their chickens never receive any human antibiotics. So uh, tell us what this really means. Well, uh, thank you. First of all, thank you for having me. But uh, yeah, this is a a huge public health Milestone. Uh, Purdue is probably one of it, it is one of the larger companies uh, in the poultry industry, and, and the poultry yeah. industry in the United States produces nine billion chickens a year. That's right. So taking um, all of their antibiotics out of the hatcheries, which is where the chicks be, you know, come from, eggs, and then end up on our table, um, taking all of those antibiotics out and taking out almost all of the other human antibiotics out of the um, their production system is a big deal. Um, it really decreases the the problem we have with antibiotic resistance. Absolutely. So um, they point out that they are way ahead of adopting the voluntary guidelines, uh, 213 and 214, I think they were, uh, that were proposed by the FDA last year that was also, again, big news. The FDA is finally moving on antibiotics, and then it turned out to be voluntary guidelines. They say that they're way ahead of those voluntary guidelines. Do you think that that is, is accurate? It certainly sounds like it, but, you know, I never trust these guys. <laughs> I'm sorry to say I never trust the man. <laughs> I, you know, a, a good ex-hippie here, so, you know, always skeptical. But um, it sounds like they're really doing it. Would you concur with that? Well, it's certainly from what they've said, it sounds like it. Um, you know, as you said, the FDA guidance is, uh, proposes voluntary guidelines for drug manufacturers to 
reduce the use of antibiotics um, in order to lessen the, the, the threat of antibiotic resistance. And Purdue is actually going a step further than the FDA guidances. The FDA guidances said that we shouldn't use antibiotics for growth promotion, right. but uh, Purdue is saying that they're going to go further and not use them except to treat sick animals. And the FDA guidelines don't go that far. No, they don't. And one thing that they're doing is, I mean, I don't know if people realize that every egg that is fertilized that goes through the hatchery process actually is injected not only with uh, some kind of a vaccine to prevent a common chicken ailment, but also because of the tiny pinhole prick from that vaccine, uh, they also get a dose of gentamicin, which is a, a Human, a medically important drug, and so that is the drug that they are uh, that they're phasing out of their hatcheries. You know, I gotta I gotta wonder. Like, it took them twelve years to get there, um, and it's been the last five years that it's taken them to figure out how to manage disease in their flocks uh, when they withdraw gentamicin from the eggs in the hatcheries. Um, but now they've discovered that they can do that and do it successfully and still maintain the same mortality rates. Why, you know, like, why isn't everybody doing what they're doing? And, you know, why did it take them so long to figure out that it was actually possible to raise 9 billion chickens a year, not Purdue specifically, but, you know, why is it possible to do that now when, you know, for years they've insisted that it was not a possibility? I think that's a very interesting aspect of this. Um, I, I agree with you. I, I don't know why the other companies haven't um, been looking at what Purdue is doing and saying we could do this too. Now, uh, you know, as you raise chickens or you raise any animals, you sort of get into a pattern of you know what works. But um, Purdue said, you know, we know this works, but um, our customers are actually asking for for um, something else. And so they said, how do we make this happen? So they, they couldn't just take the antibiotics out and not have anything happen. Um, but what they figured out they should do is um, increase their hygiene. So the, right. the eggs, you know, before they inject the eggs, they make sure the eggs... Um, are cleaner. Right. Uh, it seems give, pretty simple. Uh, they, <laughs> you know what so I mean? It's like... Some of it, I think, is simple in hindsight. Yeah. Um, but you have to figure out... You also have to have the determination to say, yeah, we are going to make a change, and if we're going to make a change, what do we have to do? And, and you need a reason to have to change, I guess. Yeah, and that's consumer demand, which is really exciting. Now, one of your colleagues, uh, Susan Von Gruters, uh, who runs Keep Antibiotics Working, points to the fact that antibiotic resistance has been bred in by previous generations, So, um, which means that antibiotic-resistant uh, bacteria, if I understand them, correct me if I'm wrong, is, is, is basically now sort of a part of the animal's DNA, as it were. Um, so how much of an impact will this, you know, withdrawing gentamicin from, from hatcheries have on reducing resistance? in future, or are these birds permanently altered um, by the earlier uh, excessive use of antibiotics? Did I make, was that clear? Did I make yeah, I think clear? so. I, I think it's important to remember that the bacteria, that it's the bacteria that are resistant to the antibiotics right. and not the chickens. Right. Um, and so the antibiotics are working on the bacteria, not really on the bird. Um, we, um, we do know that when other countries have withdrawn um, antibiotic use on their, their farms, um, the and they've reduced it significantly, like by half or more, um, that they've seen a decrease in antibiotic-resistant bacteria. They don't get rid of all of it, right. and that may have to do with the um, the so-called grandparent stock or the parent stock. Right. Um, so there may be some bacteria that is, you know, because bacteria then can get everywhere, but yeah. um, they can certainly reduce it by reducing the amount of antibiotics that are going to the 
the birds that end up on your table. Right. So, I mean, I guess what I'm, I'm, you know, just curious, like, so essentially once you've altered uh, the, the composition of bacteria so that it becomes drug resistant or multi-drug resistant, there's, there's really no going back from that. You have made a change. It's sort of like GMO, right? It's like once you let that stuff out into the cornfield, there's no taking it away. Well, sort of yes and no. The okay. bacteria are always competing with each other for uh-huh. for dominance, and so if the bacteria are always in a in an environment where there's um, antibiotics being sort of thrown at them, uh-huh. um, low levels or high levels, those are the one the resistant bacteria are the ones that are going to thrive. If there's not a competitive edge for that, right. sometimes those bacteria will will die out and the others will take over. That doesn't always happen though, and we don't have good predictive models are good ways to predict which ones will um, sort of lose that, that edge and the others will take over and which ones will say, you know, I've got this antibiotic resistance, but I can still maintain my edge. So it's, it's, a really, um, it's really a gamble, but, yeah. um, but we know that sometimes that it can happen. So that's what we're, as a scientist, you tend to be optimistic and say, okay, I think we, we know we can make that happen sometimes. Right. So that's what you're going for. You know, you were with me at the NIAA concert, uh, conference last year, which, by the way, I got another invite to that. I don't know if you got that. I'm sure you did. Um, I did. And, uh, and it, this is a very different story than what we were hearing at that conference last year. Don't you agree? I mean, I wrote a piece for the Huffington Post, which really um, made my name mud in the industry. But basically, I mean, my takeaway from that conference was business as usual. It was more like, oh, well, we need to you know, study more. And actually, it's all the fault of American Medical Association doctors because they're overprescribing. And it really has nothing to do with livestock. And then Dick Raymond, who I really like a lot, but still, you know, he said, well, if one works, doesn't matter four or five others. Others don't. You know, I mean, it was just like it was, ah, you know, my jaw was dropping right and left. Didn't you feel that way? And then now look at what's happened in a year. I mean, this seems amazing to me. Yeah, um, you know, what I would say with the NIA conference is that they did start to invite people who weren't exactly the same. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, so so I think that that was a, you know, that was certainly a good step forward. Yeah. Um, you know, World Health Organization and CDC have, you know, and, and I tend to look at those as being pretty sound organizations. Right. Um, have said that neutral. this is a this is a problem. This is a problem internationally. Right. This is a problem that um, has both you know human medical and a uh, animal um, component to it, mm-hmm. and we all need to to sort of take care of our piece of that. We all right. are part of that. Have to be a part of that solution. That it can't be just one piece and expect everything else to just be fine because that's not going to happen. Right, right. Um, To go back to the Purdue um, story, which again is so, so very interesting and exciting. um, One of the things that struck me when I read this is, um, you know, what I know about chicken um, production in general is that most of the people who raise chickens are contract farmers, essentially. Um, We certainly learned that in that fantastic book by Chris Leonard, um, the meat, uh, what was it? The meat racket, I think it was, um, that was all about the Tyson family and the Tyson industry model. And Purdue, of course, follows that same model. So they have a lot of contract farmers uh, raising their birds. So they may get antibiotic-free uh, chicks from the hatcheries, but then what's the impetus for them? How does Purdue monitor um, how they raise their flocks and make sure that they are not administering, you know, uh, growth-promoting uh, antibiotics within their flocks in the chicken houses. Is there any sort of mechanism for that that you're aware of? 
Well, I know that in um, a lot of the contract farms, they also provide the, the food and have um, protocols that the, the farmers um, and the growers have to to follow. But uh-huh. um, Purdue also said in their announcement that um, that since that they're looking to third party validation, so they're looking at having uh, USDA oversight. Um, How they go as well? That. So. <laughs> I mean, the USDA can't I see I, anything. There, there's I mean, still a lot of questions that, that I don't have the answers yeah, to. Yeah, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, the idea of a third party, I think that's a great idea, but I think, um, you know, the idea that the USDA has the resources, the funding, the personnel to do anything like that is, is you know, we're we're a long ways away from that in terms of getting Congress to fund any sort of program of that sort. Um, let me say sort one more time. And then I wanted to ask you if there had been any specifics offered in, in how much of any of the antibiotics Antibiotics they'll be using, both those that are um, going to be phased out by 2016, uh, according to the FDA guidelines, or, you know, those that are um, that are just currently veterinary drugs. Do they give you any, do you have any sense of how much they're going to be using just for, say, disease prevention, which I know is a big concern? Yeah, I, I don't know for sure. Like I said, they, um, you know, they had, as you said, they, they went from essentially all of their birds getting or 100% of their birds getting um, antibiotics at some point of their life to now what they're saying about 5% of them, but getting human antibiotics um, or, you know, the same antibiotics that are used in, in people. And they said that that would be likely for treating birds for only a couple of days, but I haven't seen any more detail than that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's certainly something that um, would be... Um, would be nice to have. Uh, you know, we, we just don't have the, the, the details, and it encourage Purdue to um, share that information with FDA and USDA so mm-hmm. that they can really work to come up with policies to further reduce antibiotic use. Yeah. I mean, again, it goes back to the idea that, you know, they've figured out a way of, of raising animals, uh, whether it's chickens or any other aspect of the livestock industry, that there, you know, there is movement towards uh, figuring out how to raise animals with a much less a much lower dose of antibiotics. But then, um, but to go on, there is, there was a fantastic report from Reuters. I'm sure you saw this. Um, and I'm mm-hmm. going to quote from it. Um, this is going, we're going to go a little sort of further afield here. But um, when epidemiologists, this is a quote from Reuters, when epidemiologists examined 68 of the Salmonella Heidelberg cases linked to the famous Foster Farms outbreak last year, they found that the two thirds of the bacteria were resistant to at least one antibiotic, according to the CDC, and half of these quote-unquote superbugs were impervious to drugs in at least three different classes of antibiotics. And I would take that to mean that, okay, so there's the tetracyclines, there's the ionophores, there's the penicillins. These are all the different classes of antibiotics, right? Can you, right. Ex- can you like sort of dissect for us, because you're being a scientist, um, how yeah. antibiotic resistance evolves across classes of drugs? Because I think that's kind of a key point to this whole issue. Right. Well, there's a couple of things going on. One is that um, obviously any time you use antibiotics, you can potentially select for antibiotic resistance. But if you're um, feeding low doses of antibiotics over a long period of time, um, that is done commonly, but not not everybody in the industry, but but commonly in the industry, um, to get the animals to grow faster and to compensate for their unsanitary living conditions. You can create, you're creating the ideal breeding grounds for antibiotic-resistant bacteria, so you're giving them a very low dose, they're able to become resistant, they pass that resistance on to um, both their sort of offspring or their 
uh, other bacteria like them, and they can pass it on to other bacteria not like them. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also use di- we use different classes, or we the industry uses different classes of antibiotics um, in raising the animals. And then there's something that we're uh, we know that there are some antibiotics that um, if if a bacteria sort of if you will learns how to become resistant to that type of antibiotic, it can learn how to be, it is then in, or learns how to become antibiotic resistant or resistant to another type of antibiotic. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's the same, the same mechanism by which that antibiotic works. Mm-hmm. So if it's resistant to one type, it'll be resistant to another type sometimes. Sometimes, but not always. So I guess that right. leads me to the question of, um, so they are removing uh, the medically important drugs, i.e. penicillin, um, you know, uh, all of the, for instance, this happened a couple of years ago, but all of the... Um, what do they call them? Uh, you know, oh, the, the ones that we use all the time, like ciprofloxacin and stuff like that. The ones that right. are used very commonly, right. very extensively in human medicine. So they're going to withdraw all of those uses from livestock or from chickens right now, um, but essentially from all livestock in the next coming, you know, theoretically phased out in the next few years. Um, but once they withdraw those medically important drugs, is that really going to? Ha- I mean. What am I trying to say here? I'm, you know, like those those bacteria have already evolved, and and if they continue to use other types of antibiotics that are not medically important to us, won't those still confer certain resistances even to the ones that are medically important? I know that was convoluted. Well, I hope I made. Yeah. Well, I guess there's a couple things there. One is that um, even if the FDA guidances are, are followed and the, yeah. the antibiotics are taken out for, for growth promotion. That's so, certainly not going to get rid of all of the antibiotics, the human, even the human antibiotics that are used in, in food animals. And that's, mm-hmm. that's not done. I mean, there are, there are raised without antibiotics lines of, of, of meat that are produced, uh, animals that are raised and uh, organic. Um, so there will still be, still be some antibiotics that are, are are going to be used um, for this big prevention piece and then for treatment and control. Um, the ionophores are a little bit different. They're um, not considered a human drug, and there hasn't been a lot of... Um, I haven't found any studies that say that, that when the bacteria become resistant to that class of drug, the ionophores, a non-human drug, that that um, has any effect on the, the drugs that we do use? So we don't seem to see that cross resistance. So we still can use all the you know, still use all the human drugs that we've got if ionophores are the only thing that they were resistant to. But right. like I said, they're still going to be using the other um, the other drugs. So um, even Purdue is not going to completely get rid of all of their drugs. Well, no, I mean, they're going to continue to treat sick animals. And I think, you know, pretty much everyone can agree that failing to treat a sick animal would be inhumane and we don't want that. So, um, yeah, I mean, there are certain applications where obviously, but when an animal is sick, I think it's important to note that they get a much higher dose for a much shorter time than what has been the norm, which is the, the, what, you know, some people call the subtherapeutic level or the low dose level, which has been used to a prevent disease, because as you point out, these unsanitary conditions and b the, um, you know, growth promotion, which now, uh, drug companies are being obliged to take that off of the label. That's now going to be what off, is that what's called off labels use when they use it as a growth promotant? Uh, no, no, because, um, right now those, those drugs are allowed to be used 
they're approved by FDA to be used for growth promotion. So that's an on-label use. Ah. Um, but that's going that, to be phased out, right? Isn't that what's being phased one, out? Right. Once they, once they get um, phased out, once the label says it can't be used for growth promotion, um, then any use for growth promotion, if that was allowed, would be considered an off-label use. So if using it for something that the label doesn't say you can use it for, it, that's an off-label use. Right. Now, FDA has said that they're not going to, um, if a company says that you can't use it for growth promotion, that that won't be able to be used even on an off-label use for growth promotion. That that's just that that part of it's going to be off the table. Right. But there's still the the prevention uses, and that's that's more problematic. It is because I mean you can sort of interchange. <laughs> You know, you could say, well, I mean, but we have to prevent disease, don't we? So, you know, and you're still getting the growth promotion benefit from that, right? And but will it you, be monitored? Don't that happens, to- but it's even even sort of more insidious than that, that so, many of the um, the labels or many of the products that are out there have um, the label says that you can use it for growth promotion at a certain low dosage for an extended period of time. And that same low dosage is also approved uh, as a label for prevention. So if you right. take it away as growth promotion and say that you can't do that anymore, but you can still um, give do exactly the same behavior, give the same drug at the same dosage for the right. same amount of time, but just call it something else. Right. Quite honestly, the bacteria don't care what you call it. That's right. <laughs> They're not differentiating. Absolutely not. Um, I want to move on a little. Actually, you know what? Let's take a very short sponsor break here um, because then we're going to go on to talk about a couple of articles that I read from Food Safety News that were kind of alarming in a way. Um, so, um, Jack, let's queue up a little sponsor drop and uh, please stay on the line with Dr. Gail Hansen from Pew Charitable Trust to learn more about this earth-shaking uh, announcement from Purdue. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. We're talking today about the uh, extraordinary announcement from Purdue uh, that they were removing um, uh, the use of human antibiotics in their hatcheries and phasing out antibiotic use pretty much across the board. Um, it was, you know, it's a, it's a really exciting um, uh, evolution of thinking in the livestock industry. And, um, you know, it's really, it's kind of amazing because they've, they've, as I said earlier, they've officially broken ranks with the rest of their poultry industry. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, first of all, what kind of impact you see that having on other producers. But I wanted to go on to something that really sort of freaked me out because the response from the Animal Health Institute um, this was reported by Food Safety News. Uh, they quoted from Richard Carnavale, who is the vice president for regulatory, scientific, and international affairs. And um, and he's talking about the FDA guidelines that Gail and I have been referring to about um, the voluntary phasing out of growth promoting, et cetera, et cetera. And he, he says... Um, Once growth promotion comes off the labels, veterinarians will only be allowed to use those dose levels for prevention. Okay, so that goes back to what we were speaking about earlier. Um, And then he says the process will work and it will be effective. Um, How how do you feel about that assessment? I mean, 
somehow, given what we just said about this, that bacteria don't differentiate. Um, you know, is he blowing smoke here or does he really believe this? Or I don't quite get that response. It certainly didn't well, like, seem to be encouraging to Purdue. Let's put it that way. Well, you know, as I said before, that on, on some of the labels, the doses for growth promotion and disease prevention are the same. They're identical. Yeah. So um, it's true that the veterinarians won't be able to use them for for growth promotion. Veterinarians were often not involved with that anyway. Right. Many of these labels are over-the-counter drugs, so a veterinarian doesn't have to be involved at all. Um, you know, so dozens of them will still be available for these same continuous low doses. Um, you know, I would like to be optimistic, um, and it would be lovely if it worked, but I think we have to be prepared for um, if it doesn't. Uh, FDA has said that if, this, uh, if these voluntary guidelines don't have the effect of decreasing antibiotic resistance and decreasing the amount of antibiotics that we're using on food animals, that they would reassess. Uh-huh. Um, and and that any- will probably mean mandating something, but... Um, but we have to, but that's a waiting game. Right. Well, as um, you know, I've, I've often had uh, members from the meat industry on this show, including Scott Hurd, um, the late lamented, I might add. Um, and he said that the reason that they're not, that the FDA hasn't mandated this is that it would then become uh, an issue that would uh, be, essentially the trade groups would tie this up in courts and it would be years before any movement forward was made. And somehow that sounds like a realistic assessment um, in, you know, for the industry in response to a mandate as opposed to these voluntary guidelines. And that could take years and years, right? Well, we, there is a history of that happening. Yeah. Um, the uh, FDA had approved a drug um, called Batril. It's a, a, called a fluoroquinolone is the, um, the class of drugs. Mm-hmm. And um, they, when they first... Uh, allowed it to be used in animals, they said we're going to, to look for antibiotic resistance as we're giving, as this drug is now being available for animals. It had been available for people for 10 years and seeing very low levels of resistance. Mm-hmm. They saw huge increases in resistance, going from 1% to 2% of the bac- some of the bacteria being resistant to 20% within wow. the space of five years. So FDA said, okay, we said we were going to, if we saw a problem, we would... Um, uh, disallow this this use, and they asked the companies, and one of the companies took it off the market, and the other company sued them, and it took five years. Mm. Um, and during that, before there was uh, the courts finally said, no, FDA is right. This drug, um, it was right for them to take it off the market. And in that five years, the companies, of course, didn't have to change any of their practices. Sure, and they the made tons of money. The companies said um, in some of their um, the the things that they submitted to to the court that that this would um, not be good for their that their industry would be it would be devastating to their industry and they you know basically they couldn't go on without it but but they managed yeah absolutely I mean th- this was not a drug that was this was a drug that was not used for for growth promotion but um, and, and it was a drug put into water but it was you know that um, you know the, the company said that they would sue and they did yeah um, now when FDA limited the use of um, of another drug recently, um, cephalosporins, um, right. which is Keflex. 
Um, the drug companies didn't sue, but from the time that they first made the announcement that they were going to do this in 2008, it wasn't until 2012 that it actually happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so if the drug companies, you know, it, it, it can slow things down. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if there are, you know, there are different ways that you may be able to get around that, but if, if the drug companies um, are going to sue for every drug-bug combination, mm-hmm. um, that could take a lot of time, and in the meantime, like I said, the, the once again, the bacteria don't care whether we're doing what we're doing, and they're going to keep um, evolving, keep evolving, and keep spreading, and keep uh, reproducing. Isn't it true that um, the new classes of you know, like the new um, Salmonella Heidelberg, Salmonella, you know, Topeka or whatever? I mean, there's like all these new strains of Salmonella, new strains of Campylobacter. Um, aren't those all a response to uh, the use of antibiotics? Isn't the um, evolution of those uh, new strains, and they're primarily, they're mostly at least drug resistant, if not multi-drug resistant? Um, the the salmonellas are sort of an interesting thing because there there are a lot of there are literally hundreds of different types of salmonellas, yes. but only. Um, a few dozen, which is still a lot, uh, that can make people sick. And they, they tend to come and go a bit. Um, the, the new ones that come up aren't, don't necessarily start out being resistant. Um, as they become more prevalent in a, um, in a poultry production facility or, or, or a swine facility, whatever, but as we're giving them antibiotics, then they become resistant. Mm-hmm. And then, um, if we get, if we have a, um, an outbreak, and usually we find that out when we have an outbreak of right. of, of the disease. Then we go, oh, this was a problem. <laughs> <laughs> oh, whoops! <laughs> oh, too bad. <laughs> um, to go on, I have another incredible quote from Carnivale. Again, uh, he is from the Amer- uh, the Animal Health Institute. Um, and vice president for their regulatory, scientific, and internal affairs. And he ended his comments by um, uh, referring to um, the work of the National Antibiotic Resistance Monitoring System, otherwise known as NARMS. And here's his quote. He wondered if the resources being dedicated to antibiotic resistance are out of proportion to the problem. How do you respond to that? Well, I would say we need more detailed data, not less. Um, the World Health Organization um, analyzed, um, they just put out a report this past April, and they, they looked at 129 member states, and they said they saw lots of resistance to antimicrobial agents all over the world and, and um, concluded that there's a lot of, of data gaps of, of detail, not that there's a, we, we certainly know that it happens, but, but the details of how it's happening um, are still um, not as clear as, as you know that it, as it should be. In the in this country, we know about the antibiotic resistance to a few bacteria, but it's really only um, a few of them. So NARMS, the National Antimicrobial Resistance Monitoring System, which is I'm glad it's called NARMS, um, is it really collaborates state and local health departments, CDC, um, USDA, and FDA, um, but they're only looking at the susceptibilities of certain bacteria um, that are found in sick people and meat and, and food animals, and it's only intestinal bacteria that they're really 
looking at, and, mm-hmm. and antibiotic resistance really goes to all bacteria. Um, so it, I mean, it certainly helps to have that, but we, it right. needs to be expanded. And on the other side, um, knowing what are the drivers of that, we don't have a lot of information what's on, on the, the details of what's driving that. So we know how much antibiotic is used in this country, but we don't know if it's going to, how much of it is going to pigs, how much of it is going to broiler chickens, how much of it is going to turkeys. We don't know that. How much of it is going to growth promotion? Uh-huh. We don't know that. How much of it is going into feed or how much of it is going into water? We don't know that. Right. Well, we do have, I mean, that Reuters report was based on a batch of feed tickets that they were able to obtain um, somehow. And that's where they were able to see like how much of each antibiotic and for what use was going in through these feed mills and then into, um, you know, into the livestock feed. So that was one that was, but that's, that information was, um, I don't know how they acquired that, but, um, you know, they, it's certainly not something that's all that common to find. Um, I want to go on, though, because I want to um, talk about something that I read on Meeting Place, one of my favorite publications, as most people who listen to this program regularly know. I'm an avid fan of Meeting Place and Drover's Cattle Network. And um, they quoted Ashley Peterson, who is the National Chicken Council Vice President of Scientific and Regulatory Affairs. And in response to the Reuters article I just mentioned, she said, and I quote, all antibiotics used to prevent and treat disease in chickens are approved by the U.S. uh, Food and Drug Administration. Okay, we know that. And the majority of these antibiotics are never used in human medicine and therefore represent no threat of creating resistance in humans. Now, in the face of all of the evidence, okay, inconclusive as some of it may be, is that is that an accurate statement that really there's really no <laughs> nothing to worry about here, folks? <laughs> like I don't I don't understand how she can say that. What? Well, I guess I'd say um, it's sort of that that trust but verify. So I would think that you know if that statement's true, then the National Chicken Council should encourage its members to release the data so we can verify that. There you go. Um, there isn't a lot of verification going on. Um, like I said, we, in the U.S., we only know how much of each antibiotic is sold, and I we know that there's a lot of antibiotics sold. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, the the numbers vary, and um, if you want to uh, parse out the, <clears throat> you know, you can you can thread the needle and say, well, you know, you know, the numbers seventy five to eighty percent of all antibiotics go into animal, you know, livestock feed or livestock uh, production. Um, but then if you thread the needle, it comes down to like uh, only a few drugs that are medically important to humans. But even so, it's like, why are they jeopardizing that medical arsenal? Um, especially if there are other drugs that can be used and other protocols that can be, you know, vaccines, probiotics, stuff like that can, that can be used. Um, I want to go on to talk about something that is near and dear to my heart because we only have a few minutes left, and this was really um, something big. Uh, one of the things that the livestock industry loves to point to is what's called the Danish experiment, and I know you know all about this, Gail. Um, so in the, <laughs> I think it was like in the 90s, um, the Danish started to observe that, <clears throat> that uh, antibiotic uh, resistance was on the increase, and so they banned the use of certain uh, types of antibiotics in their uh, livestock production, primarily pigs. The Danes are a very big pig pork producer. Um, and then <clears throat> and phased down or, or eliminated other types of antibiotics. And, and the, <clears throat> the National Chicken Council says 
And I will quote again, antibiotic use policies in Europe and Denmark, for example, have demonstrated that banning low doses of antibiotics to promote growth has resulted in more widespread illness in farm animals, as well as the increased use of antibiotics to treat six animals. And ultimately, there has been no demonstrable improvement in public health. Meanwhile, the environmental health perspectives from the NIH, that's their newsletter, in June 2014, found... um, Agurso and her colleagues uh, tracked the resistant microbes back through generations of birds. The grandparents of the contaminated Danish chickens had been imported from Scotland, where they were treated with cephalosporins very early in life, and resistant bacteria passed from one generation to the next. A Swedish team recently reported similar findings for the chickens in that country, and the findings point up the need for international standards restricting the agricultural use of antibiotics. So in other words, these, and also the mortality of, of Danish pigs, like it spiked for a little bit, and then it went back to normal levels. So in other words, it wasn't as bad as the NCC you know, claims that it was. And right. it's, it's, but it's constantly held up. This example is constantly held up to growers as an example of how the withdrawal of antibiotics from their, um, from their system is going to damage their bottom line. And I, you know, I think that that is... Um, disingenuous at best and uh, downright criminal, <laughs> you know, on a certain level um, at worst. So I, I just wondered what your feelings were about that. Well, um, you know, a team of, of folks from Pew um, recently traveled to Scandinavia to take a firsthand look at this. Mm-hmm. And, and, but even looking at, at the information that, that comes out of, out of Denmark, um, they, Denmark is about the size of Connecticut, but they raise about as many pigs as they do in Iowa. Yeah. It's a, to give you some sort of perspective here. So, and they have um, confined area. Their, their antibiotic use on their industrial farms dropped by half, yeah. and their product, productivity number of, of pigs that they, wrote, that they um, raised increased by almost 50%, 47% since that, in that same time. Um, well, how did they do that? Um, well, they, they they did take out the antibiotics. As you said, they found that they had um, some of the um, some of the baby pigs had trouble, and some of the farms had trouble. They, when you look at the, the what the Danes did, they they saw that some of their farmers had trouble making the transition. Um, so they did research on on what are better ways to raise the the pigs. So they weaned them at, an, at a later age. Um, instead of at 14 or 17 days like we do here, the minimum age is 40, is 28 days. Right. Um, they changed um, what they were feeding them. They changed the housing. They uh, made them a little bit less dense. They're still pretty intensively farmed, but they're less dense than they had been before. And they found that most of their farmers were able to transition quite easily from that. They had about 10% of the farmers that couldn't, but the Danes took the view that rather than lowering the bar so that that last 10% could, could, you know, reach the bar. They kept the bar high and did everything they could to get those, that, that 10% of the farmers up to where everybody else was. And it seems to be working quite well. They are the, um, they're either the number one or number two uh, pork exporter in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, when you so say- it's like, you know, if it's a failure, um, I, I think a lot of us would like to fail that badly. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent point. You know, you you bring up something that really that I uh, um, am really interested right now in following this thread. Um, And that is that you're saying that they meaning they supported 
the transition. They helped the farmers. They came up with uh, new protocols for them. Um, they did mm-hmm. research. Who who are you talking about? Is that like the Danish equivalent of the USDA, the Danish government? Uh, who who's the they in this case? And why um, actually, it was a, a a partnership. So the Danish government did some of it, but really they have what's called the the pork center, and it's um, similar to our. Um, professional industrial farm groups um, that have money from their um, their members mm-hmm. and they use it for um, promoting their product and also for research and uh, for research and development and so they they've been doing the research and looking at you know how much protein is sort of an optimum amount what kinds of of uh, things besides protein do the pigs need how do you what's the uh, an optimum time to wean baby pigs what uh, what what are we ch- what do we need to change to make the pigs um, do better? <laughs> do we have and, that same mechanism? Uh, Would you say that our trade groups, uh, like the National Chicken Council, like the Animal Health Institute, are are they providing the same support to our farmers, or are our farmers expected to figure this stuff out on their own? Well, I'm not sure if it's an either or on that, but um, you know, there there's some research that goes on, but we certainly, um, you know, it certainly makes sense to to look at what uh, what they were doing um, in Denmark. The the in the Netherlands, they're doing they decrease antibiotic use um, by 50 percent over the course of a couple of years as well. There are play, there are certainly there are farmers in this country. Um, who are raising animals with either no antibiotics or very, you know, antibiotics only when the animals are ill. Mm-hmm. So there are, um, you know, there, there, there are places are to go yeah. to look for things, even, you know, in, in here in the U.S. Um, USDA has put out some um, information that um, raising animals um, without giving them antibiotics to get them to grow faster is actually doesn't cost the farmers anymore. Um, so getting that information, I guess it's the getting that information out to folks is always the, the hard part. And getting people to change, getting change is always tough. It is, uh, you know, but I, I, I can't help but feel that the trade groups um, that I, you know, follow and listen to and when I go to these conferences and stuff, I don't get the feeling that they are uh, encouraging any new, they seem to be firmly entrenched in, you know, the, the all drugs all the time protocols. Um, they seem to be firmly entrenched in maintaining the status quo. And I don't see, and I could totally be wrong about this, but I don't see the kind of research and development going on in this country vis-a-vis, uh, livestock ag that I observe in other countries. I just came back from Australia, for example, and the Australian, you know, Meat and Livestock Association is hugely powerful, at least that I could see, and they spend a lot of money on um, developing and helping farmers, uh, you know, reach better standards of animal welfare, of, you know, and they've phased out antibiotics. They don't use them except for sick animals. And they don't use uh, ractopamine or any beta agonists in their feed. You know, like, they have figured it out. They have some other issues that I don't like. I mean, they still use uh, growth hormone uh, for uh, growth promotants. But um, other than that, it's like it's a pretty mellow scene over there. And and I think that's largely because the government agency and the Meat and Livestock Association really support their farmers in a very meaningful way in terms of education. And I, you know, I could be wrong, but I just don't get the feeling that it's the same deal over here. Well, you know, I, I guess one thing that I, I'd say is that in sort of going full circle back to Purdue, uh, mm-hmm. Purdue said that they made the changes in part because of what they were hearing from their customers. Right. 
Um, so, you know, I, I would say that produce competitors and, and the other parts of the livestock industry should listen to their customers. So it's, um, you know, there's a, the marketplace can make some changes. Yeah. Um, you know, regulations, um, we can certainly, our FDA, USDA can, um, can make some some changes, uh, their congressional action can even happen. It can happen. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it doesn't but, want to, but it could. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you think how long that, you know, uh, PAMTA has been around, the preservation of uh, whatever it is, you know, Louis <laughs> Slaughter's bill that's been languishing for, oh, what, eight, nine years now? I mean, right. it's, you know. Well, you know, I think it's something, you know, sort of going back to the marketplace and consumers is if, the um, you know if consumers are demanding things of their uh, from their grocery stores and their restaurants of their school lunches um, in their hospitals yes if they ask their um, members of Congress this is, or tell their members of Congress this is an important issue for me I want this is what I want you to do about that right um, that has some you know, we we do have some pretty powerful ways of 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 making things happen but but we have to do more than sit back and say, yeah, that'd be a good idea. We, it does mean a little bit of, of action, but there are actions that people can really take sure. that will really make a difference. Yeah. Vote with your fork. <laughs> it's really that. I mean, obviously, that's what drove Purdue, ultimately. I mean, anyway, Gail, unfortunately, we have to wrap it up here. I want to thank you so, so much for joining me today and explaining um, what this means and where it's taking us in terms of progress towards phasing out uh, the overuse of antibiotics in our food system. Um, people can learn more about this on the Pew Charitable Trust's website. Is there a specific page devoted to this? Because I know you've written extensively about it, and you've got a lot of articles up there. Um, if you go to the HHIF or go to saveantibiotics.org, that's um, the best place to start looking. That sounds great. All right. Thank you so much. And thank you uh, to my sponsor, uh, Chris Howell of Kane Five Win- of Winery. And thanks to my engineer, as always, Jack Inslee. We'll see you next week, folks. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.